Welcome to Librarians Aloud, an independent podcast presented by the Academic and Special Libraries section of the Library Association of Ireland. I'm your host, Laura Rooney-Farris. So my guest for this episode is Alan Carberry. Um, Alan is the Associate Director of Champaign College Library in Burlington, Vermont, and he's a strong advocate of the role librarians can play in teaching and learning. Um, he was in Dublin recently en route to delivering a keynote at the Lilac Conference. So we had a chat about his librarian journey, how he ended up in the US and how librarians can step up to combat the onslaught of fake news. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I listen to this podcast all the way back in Burlington. I feel like it keeps me connected. Oh. And so it's kind of, it's strange that I'm all here, but I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for <laughs> um, So yeah, you're, you're back in Ireland now um, from, from the US, but this is, this is where you got your, your start in the, the library world. Do you want to talk a little bit about your, your first steps into the great world of librarianship? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I feel like whenever anyone talks about how they got into libraries, they almost always start with saying, you know, it was an accident, I fell into it. I never wanted to be a librarian. I never wanted to, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, sure, I never really thought I would be a librarian. Mm. But um, mine is probably a little bit more traditional than maybe many others. Mm. Um, so uh, it starts with my undergraduate in uh, UCD. Um, I was doing an arts degree and um, had gone to a Gwale school uh, for both primary and secondary and so knew that I wanted to continue studying Irish in university and so went to do my arts degree in UCD and Irish was indeed one of my subjects and um, at that time I don't know whether it's the same but you chose uh, two other subjects in your first year and then you sort of majored um, I'm doing air quotes, majored in two of those three in your se- in your sort of second onwards years. And so I was doing Irish and um, thought that I wanted to do economics and wanted to do a fun third subject. And so was looking through the... Irish and economics weren't fun enough for You me. know, not so much. That's, well, not for me, not for my brain. <laughs> um, uh, but anyway, chose uh, information studies. This thing, I was looking through the sort of the syllabi and was looking at information studies and thought that I think that would be kind of fun to think about doing for a year. And then realised really quickly, but not quick enough to change my subjects, that um, you know I just didn't get joy out of economics. It just wasn't what I wanted to study uh, beyond my first year. Um, and I probably picked it at the time thinking that I would be a teacher, probably a secondary school teacher. And so when it came time to sort of moving into my second and subsequent years, I um, went with Irish and information studies. And then that was fine, all was going well, and then got to my final year of my undergraduate and 
knew that I need, I wanted to do a master's. I wasn't ready to sort of quite go away mm-hmm. from college, um, but had felt like I had brought Irish as far as I wanted as I wanted it to go, and started to look at information studies, which um, was housed in uh, Deplis, or is now the School of Information. Mm-hmm. And communication studies, yeah, it's gone through a rebranding probably two or three times since I left. Mm-hmm. Um, but started to look at their master's uh, and postgraduate offerings and came upon the MLIS and um, went for it, applied and um, was successful. And so I went straight through from undergraduate to postgraduate. And then... What's your understanding of it? Um, not initially, uh, but when I, you know, when I started to uh, explore what the postgraduate options were, um, I discovered that it was really heavily, predominantly based on libraries, and so um, had this sort of moment of like, actually, maybe this is what I want to do. Yeah. And I'll always remember I went home to my mum and said, you know, I think I'm going to do masters, and it's going to be in <laughs> library studies. And, you know, my mother had no frame of reference for libraries other than stamping the books. And so I always remember she's going, oh, Alan, don't you think you'll be really bored? (laughs) I was like, no, mom, here's what it's about. And so um, uh, once she got that, uh, that was totally fine. So So that was your first experience of the conversation. Yeah, and it came from my own mother. All the time, everybody, whenever we say we're a librarian, which is, oh, God, that must be very boring. Right, right. It's just so funny that it came from my mother. Although now she, um, uh, you know, when I hear her talk about what I do, she really latches on to the teaching and the information literacy yeah. part. Um, but yeah, it's so funny that uh, that first instance of that came from within my own family. Mm-hmm. My dad was just like, I don't know what this is. Do what you need to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, so as part of sort of applying for that master's, um, uh, you needed, I think it was a minimum of six weeks work experience. Yeah. And so um, I did not have that and started to sort of look around to see what I could find and was actually um, really fortunate to be able to get work experience in the Hamilton Library in Trinity College um, under um, Arlene Healy. And it was, uh, it was so fun. And I ended up actually spending most of the summer not just in the Hamilton Library, but in Trinity College um, uh, throughout the other libraries there as well and um, it sort of just felt like actually I think I found my home I think this is where I'm supposed to be and um, yeah went and finished the masters and that's how my journey started yeah. but the teaching it sounds like the teaching element of the interest was there yeah yeah I guess if you were to ask me you know as I was maybe in secondary school or even as I was starting college what would I have been if you know what do you want to do when you grow up it probably would have been teaching I mean I said a few things like journalism and maybe I want to be a lawyer but it probably always felt like I was gravitating towards teaching and I did think seriously about uh, secondary school teaching as I was thinking in my sort of um, final year of my undergraduate and just never went in that direction and yet now, gosh, this is like, what, 10, 15 years later, I absolutely feel like I identify as an educator, as yeah. a teacher. Um, and so I, every so often I just think the thoughts that you had around teaching, you actually still got there. Like, yeah. I think I am a teacher. And so many of the people that I've spoken to um, for librarians allowed to kind of that, that little element of teaching has been in there, but they maybe at the um, postgraduate stage maybe did um, a teaching qualification, yeah. but sort of thought, oh, no, I there's something about this that's not quite for me and yeah. it wasn't until they came into librarianship yeah. that they put the put the pieces together yeah. in a way that sort of fit for them yeah that everything yeah. clicked yeah no that was absolutely I'm my experience the profession a little while to come back around to 
fully including kind of teaching as yeah. part of what we do now. And yeah, absolutely. And I sort of feel like, I mean, I've, I've had these conversations with colleagues in the past who have maybe not necessarily gone down an information literacy route, who are working in libraries but are not necessarily, you know, in a classroom or in a training room, but they're on service desks. They're on either the circulation desk or the reference desk. And I've had conversations with them where I'm saying, you are a teacher. It's just not in its strictest teacher at the top of the room, yeah. students in, in sitting down in rows. And hopefully not many library classrooms are like that anyway. Um, but that teaching comes in all sorts of shapes and aspects and sort of facets. And that it's, I think it's really hard to be a librarian in any context and not be a teacher. Yeah. The instruction certainly is, is there. In yeah. Everything that we do, every interaction we have yeah. with people, it, you know, there's a learning there. Yeah. They have an outcome. They may not know what it is yet. Yeah. We have to tease it out of them. Yeah. It's an interaction yeah. that involves us kind of finding out what their learning needs are and hopefully delivering them. And that you're doing it with them, that you are a learner with the learner mm -hmm. um, and facilitating access to, to all those different sort of pathways of knowledge. Yeah. yeah. So how was uh, UCD then when you went in to do the, the MS? Was it kind of what you expected? Was it surprising? Were there any elements to it where you kind of thought, hmm, this is not quite what I thought I was getting myself into? Yeah, not so much for me, I think, because I had had... Uh, three or four years of prior experience with that department anyway that you know I knew all the professors I knew the staff um, so for me again it was like this natural sort of advancement into that department um, I, I, I suppose the biggest thing that I felt even more so just for myself was that um, the path into that program was not like mine for most people so um, you know, in in my in our in our class, and I think in probably every other classes of similar sort of programs, you find yourself in with people who either have full time jobs in libraries or who have worked in libraries for years and are, who have this um, level of context that I just I actually did not have. And um, even though I wouldn't necessarily change my path, I, I was a baby librarian back then. I mean, I still feel like a baby librarian in so many ways, but. Um, like I just didn't have the context that everyone else had mm -hmm. and so needed to sort of play catch up on a lot of those things and it just always struck me that um, that my dynamic was different and my journey into that was different than yeah. everybody else's. It's good to have seen those multiple, multiple perspectives yeah. early on Yeah. Well, to see the, the diversity of where you yeah. go. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So you came out of UCD then ready to take the library world by storm? Ready to... Or, or, or not, I probably still, again, felt like that baby, just trying to find my way into it. Um, as soon as I left uh, UCD, I had a one-year fixed-term contract with uh, Board B at the Irish Food Board mm -hmm. in their information centre. And um, that was a whole lot of fun, um, just to even, again, interact with uh, patrons or clients or, or users of the library who were quite different, again, from sort of my frame of reference as, as, a, as a student. Um, but getting to work with Irish companies who were promoting food and drink, uh, both locally and, and abroad, and giving them the information that they needed to get their products to market was a whole lot of fun. Um, so I spent a year there, and then I went to uh, Galway, for 
I mean, I say I was a cataloger for five minutes. That's literally what it was. I, again, I was in a fixed-term contract in NUI Galway for about three months. It was a special project um, that was happening within NUI Galway that freed up a cataloging space. And uh, I'm not a cataloger. Like, I'm just no, not. I, yeah, I, I really, I'm constantly find myself apologising. Cataloging the same things like... Oh, cataloging for a whole year. Oh, that must have been awful. I, I yeah. understand why people love doing it. Yeah. Occasionally I like doing it, but it's, it's the one. It's a special, it's yeah, it's a special okay. niche area. Yeah. Um, but I think I managed not to break anything in any way, Galway. But <laughs> it's still there, I hear. It, it's still <laughs> apparently so and doing quite well. Um but it's so funny that that three month stint in NUI Galway has actually, like I still point back to that every so often. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found myself in a position of leadership in my current position and every so often I have to sort of leverage something, either a thing or uh, you know, a product that we used. Um, uh, I'll bring back that experience in, in a really minute way. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, it's so funny that I found myself there for three months, but that I still refer back to not just NUI Galway, but Port Bia and all of my other sort of uh, yeah. positions as well. And so after NUI Galway, I came back to Dublin and I was um, a cover for maternity leave in the Food Safety Authority of Ireland, which was a whole lot of fun because I found myself sort of in charge of this amazing library, this uh, sort of treasure that I often thought people outside of the Food Safety Authority didn't necessarily know that it was there. Yeah, um, we do, you know, as librarians, we know. Because, you know yeah, yeah. Person. But even even as a non sort of um, special library, I guess, mm. um, you know, it, it was so amazing to me that there was just a resource there, not just for uh, the staff of the Food Safety Authority, but for um, the public as well. And um, so I was there for almost a year, and then um, Waterford IT. Uh, were advertising for assistant librarians and I um, applied and and was um, uh, moved to Waterford and spent uh, about six and a half years there. Mm -hmm. That's that's really where I was like right now this is now I'm not quite a baby librarian I'm a toddler librarian (laughs) Um, and that's where I was right up until I discovered Champlain College in Vermont. And so how was your time Yeah. Yeah. There were so many opportunities to do some really fun things, and so many great people there. Um, I always sort of uh, think back to the time that Nora Hegarty, who was a librarian in in Waterford IT as well. I feel like she and I were really um, having a lot of fun together, just designing instruction and designing teaching and and really making some really good progress on embedding information literacy right into the programs Uh, and doing that with our colleagues as well in the learning support team, as we we were called and probably still are called in in WIT. Um, But yeah, I, I... especially think back to the way that we embedded instruction within our nursing program in WIT. Yeah, um, which is very, you know, working in the health environment, yeah. I know that, you know, particularly nurses, they have really individualized and very specific yes. information that yes. very specific ways that yeah. they respond to, to being taught and teaching and learning, and particularly through things like um, database instruction yep. and yep. You know, systematic searching. You know, yeah. it's, it's very particular to them. Yeah, and then they're going out on placement and they're seeing the real need for actual information when they're actually out there. Um, and so in a lot of ways, 
the hook is there even earlier than many other students because they really do see the need for that. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's a high pressure program. You know, they're under a lot of stresses to, um, to get their work done. Um, and, and like you said, they have really unique and special information needs. Mm -hmm. And they can be very good about identifying them as well. Yes. Working with yeah. people who work in high yeah. pressurised healthcare environments, um, as my students would be as well, they, they tend to be very good about coming in straight off the bat and saying, I don't know how to do any of this, you need to help me immediately, yeah. which is actually great for librarians yeah. because it's the people that you don't see until you know, a month before yeah, the absolutely. end of the year that you panic about. Yeah. Self-identifying early on, it's great. Yeah. Students do, do to do that. Yeah, and I think part of the reason for that is because, um, well, again, my frame of reference for the nursing program in WIT during the time that I was there is that while there definitely were some students who had, you know, gone traditionally, they started the program when they were 18 or 19, mm -hmm. there probably was a higher proportion of, um, l you know, learners who are coming back to education after a long time away. Yeah. Um, and they absolutely bring with them their own set of information needs, but a focus that I think is unlike yeah. other programs and other students. Uh, and I think that that helps. Uh, and it goes exactly with what you were saying, that they're ready and willing to say, I, I, a gap in my knowledge. And yeah, they know what they don't know, which is exactly. a great starting point, yeah. because usually it's yeah. having to acquaint people with the not knowing what they don't yeah. know. Yeah, convincing them that they that they don't have everything that they need. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I spent a lot of time working, uh, embedding instruction for our nursing program and also doing the same with um, uh, the engineering program as well. Again, totally, uh, different. totally different, but very similar in, in a lot of their mindsets as well. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so yeah, I spent a lot of time sort of thinking programmatically about information literacy as opposed to like ad hoc here, there and everywhere, yeah, which... Yeah, which felt like it was sort of what was happening everywhere. And um, WIT let me think about what it means to build a program of instruction. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And it seemed like it was kind of right about that time where information literacy and the relationship that academic institutions and, and all working environments where librarians are, they were starting to change their relationship with information instruction and with librarians and with the, the need for librarians as people with a specialist skill yeah. set to come in and yeah. deliver this and yeah. bring, the, bring the, the, the kind of the, the teaching and learning and the, the library closer together, which really yeah. kind of started happening. It feels like it's been around for a while, but actually it's not that long. Yeah. So when I was uh, just talking about um, my MLIS program, I think my year was the first year to go through Claire McGuinness's uh, information oh, literacy yeah. instruction module, her class. Um, so it's, well, I mean, it's not that long ago. It's about, what, 13, 14, 15 years ago? Um, but you're right. I feel like in WIT, when we were sort of building that program, I never really had to convince the nursing administration or the engineering why this was important. Like, they just seemed to get it. Um, probably because they had spent years of not seeing what they wanted to see. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, we started off with that sort of ad hoc uh, instruction, but that they recognised the need for that sort of longer, more longitudinal, um, programmatic approach. Yeah. Um, which is good as someone who does not have a marketing background. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think we talk about this all the time, that librarians have a marketing problem. We don't necessarily yeah. know how to sell ourselves. 
Um, we're already we're kind of starting off with about food in the sense that we're overcoming um, a stereotype that can yep. be very negative mm-hmm. towards us. And then if you couple that with maybe poor marketing and kind of very out out outward facing um, communications yeah. skills that we don't have, yeah. then we're, we're in trouble. Yeah, although I think so what well, one I think so, but I think one of the things that we do reasonably well is um, leverage the success of um, you know the the worth of our of our instruction, for example. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I think it's really easy once you can get academics into the room to show them what you can do, that they're then able to say, oh, actually, this yeah. could work in all of these other contexts. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just that first step of like getting them convinced of that that can be problematic. Yeah, but yeah like you said, once, once that happens, once that relationship kind of is built, yeah. then you're on to a winner. Yeah, and then you become a victim of your success. Doing it with them or doing it for them. Right, right. So, yeah, you made the move then to 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 Burlington, Vermont in the USA. Yeah. So um, one thing that I never, ever thought ever Mm. was that I would be living in America as a librarian. Just never crossed my mind. Um, But the story of how I got there is a story of just pure luck and serendipity. Um, and uh, it sort of it connects back to the work that I was doing in WIT. And um, because by this day, so this was about uh, 2011, 2012, um, you know, the recession had really hit yeah, into... Fun, period. Fun, fun. Um, and I was happy enough in Waterford, you know, I had settled there, but knew that I wanted to do something different. I wanted... To uh, you know, it just felt like my brain needed a new challenge. And so uh, while I was in WIT, I actually uh, completed a second master's in teaching and learning in higher education. So like back to that teaching again, but specifically wanted to do a postgraduate in teaching and learning because um, there just wasn't enough scope in my MLA, MLIS to explore learning theory, to explore what it meant to be a teacher. Um, uh, within the MLIS program and so I uh, completed a second master's in WIT and as part of that master's I was doing a dissertation and um, did some action research on using problem-based learning as a teaching method uh, in information literacy mm-hmm. instruction and um, put together a paper for uh, the LILAC conference in the UK mm-hmm. um, which was in Glasgow in 2012 and went and presented at uh, that conference And uh, while I was at the LILAC conference, I went to a talk by a librarian, a US librarian. Her name is Sarah Cohen. Mm -hmm. And she was talking about teacher identity and building this community of of teachers within her institute. And she was talking about how they do summer reading together of um, literature, not even library literature, but just, you know, a book about teaching and that they would spend time over the summer just talking about what it means to be a teacher and not just in the summer but year long that they would have weekly meetings where they would design teaching they'd talk about teaching and I um, but part of the reason why I was blown away is because Sarah is an amazing speaker but I just remember sitting down thinking I would I would love to work in a space where there's a community of people who are coming together who are just excited about teaching yeah, it just sounds it sounds lovely 
and common. not common. Space. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, and just not common in many many libraries. We yeah, don't necessarily that. have the structure to come together to do that. Certainly not within your your working. Yes. Your day to day work. Like you're probably going to do that. Yeah. On your own time, if you are doing. Yeah. It, you're doing it outside of work with maybe a group of. of right. Or, which is, I think, a problem. Like, yeah. why, are, why don't we have those structures in place? Um, but was blown away by Sarah's talk and then was looking at the programme and saw that she was doing another talk with somebody else. And so went to that one and it, that somebody else happened to be her boss and they were talking about the programme of instruction that they had in their college, which was amazing. Uh, reached every single student multiple times, like every single student, not just nurses, like, like mm-hmm. what I was doing in WIT, but every single student. And right at the end of, the, of their joint talk, uh, Sarah's boss, Janet, just happened to mention, you know, this programme is about to go through change. Sarah is leaving. Sarah's been leading up this, this big um, uh, information literacy programme. And that was fine. Didn't think anything more of it until the final day of Lilac. And uh, Janet, Sarah's boss, approached me and we just had a conversation because she had also come to my talk about problem-based learning. And one of the things that they do in this institute that Sarah was in, which, spoiler alert, is Champlain College in Burlington, Vermont. Um, no, sorry. Um, one of the things that they do is use inquiry-based learning mm-hmm. to teach information literacy. And so we were just chatting over coffee and just like the most flippant comment I've ever made. Uh, I made it to Janet and I said, and you mentioned that Sarah's leaving. It sounds like I bet you're, you're, you're going to be eager to get that filled. And she's like, yeah, I'm really eager. Uh, and actually, you know, if you would be interested, I can give you details of the position. And it was until, just until that moment, I was like, actually, maybe I would be open to it. Yeah. And so she's like, okay, here's, here's my business card. The job is closing on Monday. This is like Thursday or Friday. Um, just take a look at it and just see what, what you think. And so I did, and I applied for it. I pulled together the quickest application ever tore my CV apart because it was so Irish and had to de-Irish it for an American audience and then just really thought nothing more of it until later on that summer we started talking in a sort of formal job application process. I um, did a uh, phone interview, I did some Skype interviews with the human resources and then they invited me out to do a in-person interview and uh, travelled out and got the position. This is the greatest story ever for you to <laughs> have those conversations with people at conferences or just the, the power of, yeah. first of all, going Networking. to, to talk about things yep. in conferences. And, and you might have read about their, you might have read their article, but you, don't, you, know, you get the, you get the, the in-between-the-lines stuff when they talk yeah, about it at a conference. Absolutely. And then when you have a chat with them over coffee, you yeah. get all the bigger picture stuff about who else was involved with it yeah. and what... You know, what it took to really get the yeah you really see up it. all these great opportunities yeah and um you know one of the things that i have learned or valued since i moved to the u.s and since i moved to work with janet my boss is the importance of professional development like mm-hmm. if you as a leader have money to move into professional development absolutely do it because the value of that not so that your employees can fly away although if that's what happens then that's also a good thing but that you uh you facilitate so much other learning that can only be a benefit to your institution um but yeah that lilac experience definitely taught me that the power of just 
conversation in our profession. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm not joking when I say I never thought of moving to the US. I wasn't even looking at jobs in the US. Yeah. Um, because why, in a massive, or certainly in an industry that's way bigger than the Irish librarian profession, mm-hmm. why would they choose one guy from Ireland? Like, yeah. I think that's the assumption that most people yeah, to, yeah. To make. You always start off with the, the negatives of, well, why yeah, would I yeah. do that? It's a huge people, and you know, am I even eligible? Yeah. You start off with ticking boxes of what you should yeah, exactly. do, rather than actually looking at what you should look at. It's just it's a job spec, do I fit the yeah. criteria I do? Yeah, that's, a, that's really interesting. It's a really sort of deficit-based way of looking at something, when yeah. actually it should be more a uh, sort of positive way of looking at something. Yeah. So what kind of an upheaval was that to come from the Irish Library World, which is great, and there's a lot going on, yeah. there's some innovation, but we are um, small, and we, for those you who know, engage in the question of government and the network, we kind of know each other, and, yeah. and, and then you, you go Move. to Vermont, yeah. and you know no one. Yep, yep. What was that like? Uh, kind of scary, actually, and I will say... Um, you know, scary from a professional point of view, not necessarily scary from a um, uh, personal point of view, because actually I, I was moving with my uh, my now husband, uh, so I wasn't travelling alone, which helped enormously. And I was moving to Vermont, which is um, the land of ice cream and the land of Bernie Sanders. I so you are in the town that yeah. Yep. Incredibly jealous. Yeah, yeah. I missed free cone day the other day because I was traveling, but that's all right. It's on tap any other time. Um, so, sort of personally, moving was actually just exciting. And Vermont is, um, it's a place where if you don't listen to the accents and just look around, it could be a part of Ireland. I mean, it looks mm-hmm. very similar to, um, to, to a space in Ireland. But I worried a lot about my sort of professional community that I was about to leave because Mm -hmm. it's such a small but incredibly supportive community here in Ireland. Like, everybody knows everybody Mm -hmm. in the best way. Yeah, yeah. Information to people and you let let people know if you see something that you think would be good for them. Yeah. We all kind of support each other. Yeah, absolutely. And so to then move into a space where... um, you know, again, it's, I, I wasn't a newly uh, graduated librarian. I had a number of years of experience under my belt, and so I felt like I had lost a lot of opportunity. I couldn't say, I'm a new librarian, take me under your wing, or whatever. Um, however, it's so funny how the American library profession is also really small. Like, it's tiny. Yeah. Relatively speaking, of yeah. course. Um, and probably what happens more in the library profession in the States is that rather than knowing a wide number of people across sectors, you probably know a wide number of people within an individual sector. Okay. So I definitely know way more academic librarians than yeah. any public librarians in, um, in America. Um, but there are quite a few opportunities uh, especially if your institution allows you to travel as much as mine does uh, or can facilitate travel in the way that mine does. Um, but the Association of College and Research Libraries, ACRL, have mm-hmm. tons of volunteering opportunities yeah. to um, both locally uh, at the state level and then at the national level. And before long, you actually find yourself gravitating back towards the same people. And before you know it, you've got that community of practice again, yeah. which is really nice. But, but for sure, the thing that I actually worry quite a bit about um, 
and had visions of me like emailing the Lear list back from you know in Burlington <laughs> going I'm doing something in America does anyone have any advice yeah. um, you didn't have to no. I didn't have to it's still there in the bag of it's still there like every stop and I check in yeah, yeah. Um, but the system is quite different as well um, their education system is, yeah. is incredibly different the yeah. structure the, yeah. the emphasis um, funding um, of libraries and the position of libraries yeah. Yeah. Kind of yep. Tenured members of yep. academic staff, uh, as opposed to being quite separate yep. the way they would be in academic institutions here. How did you navigate all of that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think. For me, it was important that I just start within the context of what was happening in my institution, which is in and of itself so unique and so different from other uh, U.S. uh, uh, education institutes. So uh, it's a private uh, four-year college predominantly, although we do have some graduate programs. I didn't really know what gen ed was, other than I knew I was going across to design an information literacy or or continue an information literacy program that was hitting into it. Mm -hmm. But sort of once I saw it I was like oh I think I understand what this is and I think I understand how everything fits into it um, so understanding the context of your own of the institution that you're in I think was the was my strategy for, for starting that and every so often I'll meet a librarian in another institute who's telling me about their context and it just seems a little alien and confusing to me yeah. but um, I sort of can get those sort of tenants um, and sort of try and relate them back to what I know um, but for sure the status of the librarian um, whether they're faculty or non-faculty is definitely something that's a little um, newer for me to try and get my head around um, uh, so I'm fortunate enough in, in our institution that we do have faculty status, but we do not have tenure in our institute at all. And so this whole idea of publish or perish, which is a real thing that librarians and uh, faculty in U.S. institutes have to spend a lot of time thinking and worrying about, you don't necessarily have the pressure to do that. It, it is good in some ways, and then in other ways... Um, you know, there's drawbacks to anything, right? But for the most part, I think it, it's a great thing for us. It just means that I get to do great work and not have to necessarily worry about publishing it in and a... The pressure to be doing the yeah. job and then have to think, yes. oh, now I need to get yes. two papers per, yeah. you know, per yeah. year or per quarter or whatever yeah. what your target is. Yeah, although I guess for me the drawback is that I get some joy out of doing that. And mm-hmm. so when it's not necessarily a formal expected part of your job... Uh, it can be a little bit more difficult to sort of wedge the time in for that when it's not necessarily exactly right exactly right Um, but I think I would much rather it the way that I have it as opposed to having that pressure because it's that pressure is real Mm. and it's tough and it's hard to compete with that too the publishing process is lengthy and fickle and you can't really with any certainty determine when an article is or going to be published whether it is yeah peer review process is long and complicated and completely sure. different for every publication so I don't know how you really could stick to a kind of a formula of yeah. publishing a certain, certain amount yeah and I think the uh, well and also especially because at the open movement is really starting to pick up mm-hmm. uh, in the US and there are a lot of really um, clever minds to live to our values and to stop publishing in closed journals yeah. and to start publishing in academic journals and yet if the and then uh, other sort of alternative methods as opposed to sort of the strict the strict scholarly peer-reviewed model as well and so um 
I think there's a little bit of a tension of like the values that we hold as librarians versus the structures of tenure and how they don't necessarily yeah. have the same ideals and how do you balance that? I think that's really tough. It's a good way of us kind of practicing what we preach as well because while we yeah. spend a lot of time, certainly I know I constantly harangue people about you know, it has to be open access, yeah. the open access policy before you yeah. submit to anything. Um, were I in the same position myself, you know, you're kind of, you're, you're on a real, approaching submitting to something yeah. before you even think about when yeah. to stop, take a step back. So that's why the, the whole open access conversation is one of those conversations that needs to start really, really, yeah. really early on. Yeah. And that's why a librarian needs to have a good relationship yep. with people who are publishing Absolutely. institutions so that they almost go to you before they do anything, before yeah. they're coming back going, well, I've submitted to this journal and like, have you signed anything? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that they're not necessarily thinking of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we need to stick by our guns and actually follow our own advice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it, yeah, again, it's tough when you are under those pressures of tenure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you began working then on transforming and the delivery of information literacy in uh, Champlain. Uh, yeah, it uh, started off by... I guess continuing the program that was there. Um, so this was a program of instruction, a program of teaching that reaches every single undergraduate student um, at the time, at least once a semester for the first sort of numbers of students. Uh, so we're about two thousand uh, students, and they're all taking this um, set of interdisciplinary Gen Ed courses um, all throughout their sort of their undergraduate experience, and that it's called the core program, and it's really innovative for um, any. Uh, type of of college Uh, and that program now is about eight or nine years old and when the college was designing that program our director Janet my boss at the time said now is our opportunity to get embedded now is the opportunity for us to hit every single undergraduate student with information literacy it was a really clever kind of yeah sense of having yeah the idea set and ready to go and all the skills and yes and being that. ready and to jump at the, the time. time yeah um and came from library leadership as opposed to you know the librarians who were in the classroom and i think that's kind of important and again i sort of think about my space as a leader now like what should i be doing to advocate for whatever it is um but yeah it was absolutely taking seizing that opportunity when it came about and um that program got a lot of success we disrupted that model uh, of instruction and that's when i came in and so i had to sort of um fix uh the second year which is where instruction was not quite uh, every single semester um, and so managed to do that, managed to bring in sort of a blended approach where some of our instruction would be in person and some of our instruction would be online. And uh, from there, moved model of assessment for, for the information literacy program. And um, yeah, just continuing the great work, continuing to develop our, our librarians as teachers and uh, new opportunities that then arose in Champlain College and trying to sort of leverage those. So as well as our 2,000 undergraduate students who are there sort of face-to-face residential students, the college has this massive growing or rapidly growing number of online students from all across the country. Um, And I think those numbers are now at 3,000. So it's like more, technically more online students than there are um, uh, face-to-face on campus students. But they don't have the same core curriculum that our undergraduate students have. It's an entirely different set of, um, of curriculum. 
And so trying to find a way to embed instruction uh, for our online students uh, in a new and, and challenging and exciting way. But I think one of the things that has been so exciting for me, whether it's with the online students that we're working with or with the uh, on-campus students, is that because we meet them so many times, talking to them about library resources every single time is just not going to work. Yeah. And so we have this philosophy in Champlain College with our instruction where we talk about sort of real-world information literacy instruction, mm-hmm. where we're going into the classroom using inquiry-based teaching, so not necessarily doing sort of traditional lecture-based or classroom-based uh, instruction. It really is um, inquiry-based, where we may not even mention the library tangential beyond mm. just a tangential mention of it um, so we're talking about filter bubbles we're talking about how gender is uh, portrayed in in the media we're talking about how racism is portrayed in you know primary historical documents we're talking about um, social justice and how information can actually be empowering and how technology mm. can be empowering and I'm finding myself teaching information literacy in ways that I've never thought before but that are so exciting and so engaging uh, for the students I think yeah. Um, that it's really reshaped and rewired the way that I think about information literacy mm-hmm. um, from the ground up, really. And it sounds like you know your approach of you know, and I think this is probably the perspective that a lot of librarians have, particularly librarians who really like information literacy and work um, predominantly in information literacy. It's that approach of information literacy is life; it's everywhere. It's, yeah. it's in everything we do. Every yeah. decision we make is based on you know how information literate. Absolutely. We cannot do anything in life without kind of having core yep. information literacy skills. Yeah. Um, that that approach has now that approach and the state of the world have are, are now meeting and absolutely, absolutely. interesting things can yeah. happen yep. in that space. Yeah, and scary things can happen. And, and scary things, but I think this is the moment, you know, that we can really see exactly where our core skill set can be beneficial not just in an academic environment in a certain group of students but everywhere yeah absolutely i totally agree as long as we're able to sort of make the switch ourselves i think that's the important thing um uh i just have this thing that i can't move out of my brain which is why are we teaching things like you know proquest databases elsevier databases Mm. when the vast majority of people that are in our classrooms by the time they graduate will never have access to that ever again. Yeah. And so if, if that's true, uh, how are we setting them up for you know, lifelong learning if we're teaching towards tools as yeah. opposed to teaching them processes? If we're not starting with, you know, right. this is your problem, this is what you need to find out. Right. Here are the best tools for this particular scenario. Right. They won't be the same tools right. for the next question you right. need to answer. And what are the power structures across all of these formats of information that actually shape, at any given moment, the access that you have? And how can we actually, as a society, um, break away from that? Yeah. So taking on the big questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you're going to be talking this afternoon about this very topic, about fake yeah. news. Yeah. And I like the, the title of it then. Yeah. Look, I just won't cut it. Um, it's true. We do need to be thinking on probably a much more enormous and global scale than, yeah. than the way we have been thinking before. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, 
so the title, uh, Fake News is an Oxymoron and a Lip Guide Just Won't Cut It, is not necessarily meant to be librarian shaming because the work that this community does is phenomenal. Um, I guess what I'm just worried about is that we... Uh, that we stay too much in the rudimentary lane. So, you know, we've all seen the crap test, you know, where we can test for currency, reliability, authority and purpose. And um, I think if you apply the crap test to uh, some of the documents or the ideas that are coming out of the um, administration in American government, Mm -hmm. it might actually pass the crap test. Yeah. And so that's a problem, right? Also, you know, the, the ability to make a judgment on whether something is current or reliable yeah. um, or has authority yeah. is completely different depending on a person and their bias. Yes, yes. So a lot of, to me, it starts with bias. Absolutely. And, and the perspectives that we're looking for. Um, so, yeah, I think I am hoping that as a sort of profession, we can really start to think in a much more complex way about... Uh, about what's happening in the media, about what's happening with sort of information in general and um, sort of move beyond that. And I'm really, really concerned that fake news has now become really quickly this thing that is not even fake news anymore. Mm. Um, It's become this thing that you shout over someone and say fake news just because you don't agree with them. I heard, um, I happened to be listening to uh, radio this morning before coming out to work, and I heard Willie O'D yeah. use fake news about something that he didn't like. No, and don't do this. It's now become kind of yeah. a throwaway term. Yeah. Nobody's even thinking about what's behind yes. referring to something as being fake news. Yeah. They're not thinking about what I'm doing is condemning that as in, in, inaccurate yeah. information. They're just going, nah, fake news. It's right. Just, uh, I don't want to hear you p- plugging your term. fingers in your ears. Yeah. yeah. And I think this is, I think this is an information literacy problem. Like, I believe this in my core because when you try and when you break that down what we're really saying is I don't agree with you and I reject your premise outright and and broadly what that means is that we've lost the ability to share ideas to communicate to um, uh, share knowledge together just because we don't agree with it Um, and no lib guide no crap test no mnemonic sort of um, anything no infographic is going to fix that uh, because it's led by emotion. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was at yeah. something last week that was about communicating impact, and you know, it was actually from a communications perspective. But one of the interesting ideas that they put forward is that you know, because we're now in sort of the, the post truth theory, it doesn't care what your facts mm-hmm. are, and it doesn't care that you've got information to back up everything you're saying, mm-hmm. it doesn't care what your evidence base is. You need to mix some sentiment in with that because right. it's, it's not the message isn't going to get through. So you kind of have to take your facts, and back it up with a nice story. So the, the the best way to approach doing that is a storytelling and a narrative approach, right. where you kind of go, well, mm-hmm. this is whoever this was their scenario, this was how their life has changed. Here's the facts and figures to back this all up. But I'm not just going to come in at you with a giant infographic right. with statistics on it. Right. And I think that's a challenge for librarians mm-hmm. because, and I say this as a health librarian who's very the evidence base is very mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. Um, we can struggle with 
having all of the factual information, having all the data and the st statistics, but also then finding some way to make it human, to make yeah. it personable, to put it in some kind of a narrative structure that people can relate to and kind of have some emotional connection to. Right, because that's how this fake news has spread through emotion, yeah. through um, someone's truth being that um, Obamacare, for example, has made them in a space that is way worse than they've ever been. And so that message gets projected and amplified. Um, yeah, and that's all that you hear is that sentiment. So, uh, yeah, I worry a lot about how we've lost the ability to uh, consume and share and sort of um, be engaged in a critical dialogue. And that the fake news moniker has become just this label that you use to shut someone up. And I think that's, um, I think it's problematic in a really, really where profound way. Where do we start, even as librarians, where do we start with, with finding a way to Trying to figure it? this out. Yeah, and I think that this is um, something that's going to take time. For me, I think it's about trying to put scenarios and situations together where it just becomes par for the course for whether it's students or whether it's, um, you know, if you're not in an academic library, to the situations that you put together that were modelling the behaviour that we expect. Mm -hmm. In other words, can we have a classroom where students are engaging and grappling and conversing together and having conversations that are not comfortable at times, mm -hmm. where we actively disagree, but that we're using data and research and knowledge to actually inform our conversations mm -hmm. and being open and curious about what the other has to say. Yeah. Um, and I think until that becomes what we do all day, every day, as opposed to just, and now we're going to turn on our critical thinking skills, mm -hmm. until it becomes truly ingrained into what we do, then um, I, I think we're going to struggle with this problem for a long time. Um, boots on the ground what does that look like I think it looks like librarians working with faculty to actually design lessons as opposed to just I'll come in for you know 30 minutes yeah, or whatever being grateful for the 10 minutes right. off that you're given right we need to become I think active partners in the learning experience mm -hmm. um, because if it becomes this tact add-on thing then we still stay in that rudimentary space of crap tests and mm -hmm. you know mnemonics or whatever it might be yeah. Do you think we need to get better with confrontation as well? Because I think maybe we're not always great with that. I th yeah. No one is. If yeah. Someone likes to be kind of stirring what might be difficult conversations or confrontational um, confrontations. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think so, and I think um, I think we also need to recognise that as librarians, we're not neutral. That we have an active role to play in all of this, and that actually we have librarians are in a really great place to either specifically speak truth to power or facilitate speaking yeah. truth to power. Um, you know, I'm just really struck by some of the things that are happening in this country around false allegations, you know, just because someone has knowledge around guard activity. And when that knowledge is brought to life, they're accused of something. Yeah that is just not true um like there's dynamics of information power going on there yeah and, and i think power is the, the key yeah. word in that scenario yep um and as librarians i think it's up to us to um to highlight that that mm. information has power yeah. and um if we're able to 
speak to that and amplify that power so that everybody walking around who's about to register a vote for a president or about to register a vote for uh, leaving or staying in the EU or about to elect a new uh, Taoiseach uh, through, through our election process, uh, that they have the knowledge that's informed there mm-hmm. by the power structures that are happening with their information. Do you think one of the issues which I sort of can see is that a lot of the debate and decision-making is driven by what's very prevalent in the media and that in itself has, before it comes to print or come, comes in front of you, it is, is inherently coming from a specific perspective. Yeah, that absolutely. Not, not always equipped with the skills to be able to look through what's being presented in the media. I think so, yeah. And I think as well as that, I think social media has moved into the space that I think it potentially wasn't intended for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I see the real value of social media for uh, amplifying or getting access to perspectives that we just don't have. Yeah. I think the Black Lives Matter movement is a real um, testament to that. Like that started on Twitter. Mm-hmm. It's moved to something else. It's moved. The conversation has moved somewhere else. But initially, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, was amplified through social media and gave voice to voices that we weren't hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we don't have access to those voices anymore, or whether they're being filtered or sort of um, reshaped through traditional media formats, then again, I think that's really problematic. Yeah. And it's a shame to me that Facebook is what it is now, which is a space to just go and continue to live in your echo chamber where either you're in your liberal bubble or you're in your radically something else bubble. Yeah, I mean, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head there, but the, the paradox of social media in that you know, it's a place for alternative viewpoints to come out, but if you're locking those out of your field yep. vision, then the, the very benefit yep. that social media could be having for you is, is gone. Yeah, absolutely. So we begin to address right. that. Because obviously, I mean, no one likes to be looking at stuff that they consider to be offensive yep. or that challenges their worldview, it's easier just to mute them, block them, right. don't follow them, turn right. them off. I don't want to engage with this. It's easy to call it's them fake very, news. Yeah, it's easy to just bury your head in the sand, yeah, yeah. but we're kind of yeah. gotten to the point we're at now by all of us. Yeah. And I think that um, the same problem of this sort of echo chamber, this filter bubble in the online sphere is what's happening in the analog sphere mm-hmm. when someone says fake news. You've just chosen to send them away, send them to the periphery and not be open to their point of view, not be open to their perspective. Um, and everything has become polarised as opposed to, um, you know, it's just really interesting that you just said that nobody wants to hear anything uh, offensive. Mm-hmm. I think it's even more than that. We don't even want to hear anything that we don't agree with. Yeah. Not that it has to be offensive. Because we might have to argue a point then. Yes. We might have to think about, well, why do I think right. this? Where did I get that information? Was it just off the back of a Facebook post right. somewhere? You, know, you have to actually think about right. the, the logical process of things yeah. like debating. And yeah. It was great to see the, the debate last month between uh, Eve Lawton and mm-hmm. Cohn. Mm. I was watching that on Twitter. Oh, really? Great. Yeah. yeah. It's following along. It was, it was a very good evening. Um, and the, you know, some of the stuff that we've just discussed came up. How do we get into that space and start challenging people? And yeah. it is difficult for us because yeah. you know 
our traditional go-to has been here are the facts and here's kind of the gold standard of information mm-hmm. that I'm giving you mm-hmm. and which creates you know, a dichotomy the of public like public doesn't necessarily care about that yeah. because they're just going well I know whoever next door to me and they had this happen to them and it was very traumatizing yeah. and I don't care about your facts or figures yeah. I just I know that this situation yeah. happened and it was very distressing so how you know how we find some meeting place between that emotional and the factual yeah. and statistical and analytical is the challenge that we're facing now. I think so. And, you know, your um, mention of sort of that gold standard of, like, typical or or traditional um, sort of, uh, you know, research publications probably versus something else. Like, that's something that information literacy instruction librarians have been talking about for years, but maybe not necessarily in in the best way. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about, like, why should you use a a peer-reviewed journal? And there are many reasons why you should use a peer-reviewed journal, but we never really talk about why you should use something else. Like, what is the value of seeking out a blog post, for example? Um, Like, there are many different... There are contexts where those are... Yes, absolutely, absolutely. ...health being my area of interest, but patient advocacy. Yeah. Do you want to read uh, a post in the BMJ about your symptoms, or would you like to hear the story of someone who's been through what you've been through? Yes. The personal connection is really really powerful yeah absolutely I think somehow there's a there's a meeting point to be found somewhere yeah um, between that narrative and very personal yeah. approach and the statistical and factual and and that it depends on the context right but i think what we've done is created this binary we've created one or the other yeah um and i think that that's exemplified in you know everything that we see with fake news yeah. liberal and versus everything we're seeing in terms of just how yeah. polarized yeah the political climate has become how polarized opinions become yeah i feel like we've lost nuance in so many things mm, and life is nuanced yeah absolutely absolutely um so yeah that's i guess sort of really the the crux of um and the lib guide won't cut apart which is um the danger that we find ourselves especially because our time is so limited with students you mm. know if we're still operating under these one shot sessions you just want to throw everything in the kitchen sink at them and make yeah. something stick and so it becomes really simplistic or, or potentially becomes really simplistic um, for a really nuanced world and I think that's where issues arise. Okay so the only way to find out what your cures are and to get more um, insight and support is to either go and hear you talk this afternoon um, or for those people who are lucky to hear you at LILAC. When is that? What day do you speak I speak on Wednesday. Okay. So, yeah. We'll watch the space, librarians. We have to figure out a way around this problem. Yeah, we're, we're, it's going to have to be something that we do together, mm-hmm. and not just librarians by themselves. Yeah. Um, but that we're part, integral and part and central to all of this process. So we can consider that a gauntlet thrown down. <laughs> Thank you so much, Al. Thank you. Having a chat with me, it's certainly been an education to me. Thank you. Thanks a million to Alan for stopping in to have a chat with me. There's loads to take away from that conversation, lots of questions. Um, If fake news is the problem, then maybe information literacy is the answer. Um, remember, if you're a new listener to Librarians Allowed, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and get new notifications of any new episodes that are available. Um, and considering how erratic and sporadic I am about getting new episodes out, that's probably a good idea. Um, you can also follow at AS Libraries on Twitter and Instagram and get updates on upcoming episodes. So go ahead and do that while you're at it. 
Librarians Aloud is produced and presented by Laura Rooney-Ferris. Music and editing are by Michael Ferris. Bye.